Speaking Well. I'm your host, Greg Dickinson. This is the podcast about communication and everyday life. In each episode, we talk with a communication expert and scholar and explore how communication research can provide resources for navigating complex interactions. We will talk about relationships and politics, social media and film, public speaking and private talk. In this podcast, we'll offer straightforward but often challenging explorations about communication centrality to our lives. In this episode, I am talking to Dr. Kari Anderson. Dr. Anderson is a professor of political rhetoric in the Department of Communication Studies at Colorado State University. For the past two decades, she has studied the culture of politics and the politics of culture, examining the ways in which political identity is rhetorically constructed and contested in popular media. She has had particular interest in the intersections of political discourse and gender. Since we're in the final stages of a very contentious and polarizing presidential campaign, we thought gaining some perspective on this campaign could be useful. We are wondering if there are ways of staying engaged in such a contentious and, for many of us, disheartening political season. Dr. Anderson, it's wonderful to have you with us on this episode of our show. Um, really, thank you a lot for taking time out of your day. Wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you do at Colorado State University. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dr. Dickinson. I am Professor of Communication Studies and Director of Graduate Studies at CSU. I teach courses in rhetoric, political communication, and gender and communication. And I'm the co-author of two books on gender and political leadership and the editor of another book on gender and political pop culture. That's great. Um, it's what happens when you have a number of years to do your work. You, you can get a lot done. And it's it's really been wonderful work. And in fact, you've spent much of your career studying the role of gender in political rhetoric, as your publications indicate. It's a huge topic. But I'm wondering if you can give us two or three major ways gender inflects political discourse in the U.S. in the 21st century. Yeah. So I'd like to talk about um, two issues, representation or where we see women. And the second one is framing or how we see women. Um, So in terms of representation, I think one way that gender is inflected in in political culture is the fact that we've got two old white guys on the presidential ticket, um, despite having the most diverse Democratic primary slates ever in this past primary season. Um, But we also have a lack of representation of women at other levels in politics. According to Rutgers University's Center for American Women in Politics, in 2020, um, 127 women held seats in the U.S. Congress, comprising 23.7% of the 535 members of the full Congress. Um, and so even at, at you know electoral levels where women uh, typically do have more success electorally, we're still way up, up underrepresented compared to our, you know, representation in the population. So that's one issue um, where we see gender inflected. But uh, another is the women who are uh, elected and running for office, how do we talk about them? Well, scholars have done research on the double bind between femininity and competence, which is a long-standing assumption in our culture that expectations of femininity clash with leadership norms. Um, and so when men exhibit the qualities of good le- leaders like assertiveness or decisiveness or authority, it doesn't conflict with what our culture thinks of as being a good man. When women exhibit those same qualities, however, they're framed negatively. Assert- 
assertiveness becomes aggressiveness, decisiveness becomes being bossy, um, authority is seen as taking over. So although we claim to be open to women in leadership positions, um, and, and we see women in high profile positions as CEOs, scientists, administrators, um, but yet the double bind works itself into both how women are framed um, and also how in political culture opponents talk about women candidates. So there are really, if I hear you right, a couple of different ways we can see that women are just simply underrepresented in any electoral uh, position, um, and that it intersects with and probably is influenced by the ways in which we talk about women as they're running and then what they can do once they're there. It's, it's really fascinating. You point out that after a, a primary of, of all sorts of different kinds of people running on the Democratic side, we choose a, an old white guy to run against another old white guy. So that leads me to my second question, which is, are there particular ways that this uh, 2020 election cycle has um, shown shown itself inflected by gender? Yeah, I can talk about that. So it's important to say that on just sort of generic polls, when, when people are asked, would you be willing to vote for a woman presidential candidate from your party, would, would, you, know, would you do that? Um, over 90% of U.S. voters say they absolutely would. The numbers go down when you ask them, would your neighbors vote for that? Um, and, and some people have hypothesized that that's how people kind of account for sexism and racism and heteronormativity in our politics. It's like, well, I, I'm fully inclusive, but I don't think the people down the street are. Um, so that's, you know, that's one thing. Um, but yeah, in this past cycle, I think I can point to a couple of examples of how the double bind kind of worked itself out um, to eliminate uh, the women who were on the Democratic ticket or who were running to be on the Democratic ticket. So we heard Elizabeth Warren being tagged as unlikable. Um, that was that was a label that Hillary Clinton got as well. Interestingly, in Hillary Clinton's long career, she was much more likely to be framed as unlikable when she was in some way inflecting presidential power, whether it is leading President Clinton's task force on healthcare reform um, or seeking to be president herself. When she did appropriately first lady activities like traveling the globe with her daughter, uh, people liked her a lot. Um, so that likability frame is kind of the 21st century way that the double bind presents itself. Like, yeah, you, you, you're allowed to run for this position, but if you do, we think that you're unlikable. Um, and another example was the stories that circulated about Amy Klobuchar, um, that she wasn't nice enough to her staffers. Um, I have to say that I have no idea how any of the men in, in Congress treat their staffers because nobody's ever reported on it. Um, the only actually other political figure that I've heard talking about how the, he treats his staff is the president. Um, and he routinely is terrible to people who have served with and for him. Um, and that obviously didn't impede his road to the White House. Um, but one of the factors that, that influenced the Klobuchar thing is that, uh, and this is true of women bosses and women professors as well, people expect women bosses to be more supportive and nurturing. And so when they're not, it's again a violation of that double bind and people get upset. Now those very same people, when they have a male boss, they don't expect uh, that level of nurturance and support. And so they don't get, you know, react negatively to their their authority over them. So the Amy Klobuchar thing was the second example. And the third and final one is 
Um, when Kamala Harris rose to the top of women who, you know, were on Joe Biden's shortlist um, for being vice president, and immediately we heard that his close inside circle of advisors said, you know, she really wants to be president. And so we're not sure that we can trust her to be a good and faithful and supportive number two because she's really interested in being number one. Now, what's so interesting about that um, is that research has shown that that women who express political ambition, but in particular presidential um, ambition, are viewed generally as less trustworthy than men who, who express political ambition. And in fact, it's completely normal for men who are vice presidents to have presidential ambitions. George H.W. Bush, Al Gore, and in fact, ironically, Joe Biden himself, right? Nobody suggested that he would be a bad number two for Barack Obama, even though he still harbored presidential ambitions. Um, so this notion that women who want political power are somehow less trustworthy than men springs right from that double bind, that men are supposed to want to lead and women are supposed to be asked to lead and when they do, to lead in a very supporting and nurturing way. So fascinating um, interweaving there of, of these three three examples that you have of, of the ambition and niceness and the expectation that, that we don't have too much ambition or that we're nice and the ways in which those contradict being a leader in some ways or certainly the masculine version of being a leader. I've been, um, like you, I think, probably following politics since I was old enough to. Um, some of my very first memories are of the Watergate scandal, and I was little at, at the time, or at least young. Um, uh, uh, I remember voting first in the Reagan-Mondale election, so I've gotten very used to losing. Um, uh, 2016, it seemed to me, was a particularly contentious uh, election uh, series, and then even more today, where it seems like there's a real uh, kind of a meanness or polarization. Um, but maybe I'm just remembering incorrectly. Maybe maybe I don't have that quite right. Tell me how this cycle seems to connect to previous ones. Sure. Well, you're not imagining it. Um, even before 2016, Pew uh, Research did a, a great study of congressional polarization. And so they did this visualization of um, members of Congress crossing party lines to support legislation. Um, and in the mid 20th century, right after World War II, you saw this quite a lot. There was a lot of in intermingling. Um, and then as we got into the 80s and which e with each decade since then, since the, you know, Reagan election that you mentioned, there has been increased polarization, um, both the nationalizing of politics, and so parties really do vote, quote unquote, the party line, um, but also a, a perceived polar... Uh, a difference of attitude about do we want our politicians to work together or not. Um, and I will say that that congressional pol um, polarization, although people often f um, fault the culture in Washington, it really has more to do with who votes in primaries um, in, in state elections, that the primary voters tend to be ideologues on both sides, the committed uh, liberals and co committed conservatives. Um, they are by nature, uh, because they come out in primary elections, more involved in politics than the people who tend to only vote 
vote in general elections. And so those their preferences of both of those groups tends to be on the more extreme end of each spectrum. And so if we if we are faulting polarization, or particularly if, if um, politicians say they can go to Washington and change the culture of Washington, it's not actually the culture of Washington that is creating this polarization. It's the, the cultures of our own neighborhoods and our own communities. And that's actually why it's so, mu- so important for us to, to learn how to talk within our own community locally if we want to solve the problem of polarization. A second thing that I will say about 2016 and 2020 that is very different from um, even the early 2000s campaign is that what we're disagreeing about now um, is whether a party is supporting white supremacy, whether people's religious expressions or affiliations are authentic, whether human and civil rights are being denied to particular groups. Um, Those arguments frankly should probably be more polarizing than you know whether we support supply side economics or even the green new deal right not only are those very personally important but they're also really affecting people's ability to exist and have full civil and human rights in the world Um, so i would say that I don't think it's a case where politicians are manufacturing false polarization completely. I mean, I think we're dealing with some really tough issues in this uh, in this election and in the last election, and it's they're ones we should take seriously and, and deal carefully with. So if I hear you right, um, something like um, civil rights for all people is not necessarily something we want to be moderate on. Well, it could go either way, but but rather something we might actually take a strong position on. In fact, all people deserve uh, equal rights, for example. Yeah, that's that's my position. Um, it actually leads nicely to to the next thing that I would like to talk about, and in some ways the impulse for this conversation, which is with a little less than eight weeks left on this particular cycle, and, and then the next cycle will begin the day after the election, almost certainly. How, how in this kind of polarized, um, hyper-partisan sort of world, can you and I, as kind of everyday citizens and, and then the people who might listen to this podcast, how can we stay engaged in kind of a meaningful meaningful um, way and preserve some sense of our own selves. Yeah, it, it, it's a really tough conversation. And, and I'm somebody, because I teach this, I research this, and I'm, I'm personally interested and committed to uh, political culture and the health of political dialogue, I found myself um, having moments where I'm very agitated and upset and stressed out. Uh, so this is, this is a personal question for me as well. Um, I do have a couple of suggestions. One is that we need to be really thoughtful about where we get our news. Um, and we talk a lot about you know news bubbles, and we tend to select into only news that we agree with. And yeah, that's part of it. But what I'd like to talk about as a as one um, mental health strategy is change where change the the channel for your news. So most Americans get their news from cable TV and social media. And those are actually the two worst places to get your news if you want to have some sort of meaningful policy focus and not make yourself crazy. Um, Cable news in particular is designed with... 
to sell a product uh, and to have not only the broadest audience as possible, but the most emotionally worked up audience so they can keep turning in and and tuning into the conversation. Um, So there are a lot of other news sources that don't have that as their business model. Um, I recommend nonprofit journalistic sources like ProPublica. Um, Public Radio, as a nonprofit news source, has a lot of you know podcasts that are dedicated to political policy. Um, and there are a lot of uh, I, I really I listen to a lot of policy oriented podcasts. And so even something like the Ezra Klein Show. Now he's he's a pretty well known left leaning journalist. However, his podcast is ninety minutes, and he invites um, people from across the ideological spectrum, and they talk about policy for a long time. Uh, And so if you just get in the habit of listening to longer, more policy-focused, more nuanced conversations, that alone is going to be less crazy-making than hearing the, you know, three-minute package on whichever cable news show you turn into. The second recommendation I have for uh, those of us in Colorado and states where you're fortunate enough to have that, um, we have a resource called the Blue Book. Uh, and so Coloradoans uh, vote on a lot of um, both referred items from the lit- from the legislature and citizen initiatives. And sometimes it's hard. You know, I think the, the local newspapers do a good job of covering some of those issues. But the Blue Book is created by a nonpartisan body um, that's whole job is to lay out sort of fact-based pro and con arguments for those citizen initiatives. And so we can seek out sources like that that really do make us smarter about the issues that we're that we're voting on um, and aren't designed to make us um, more emotionally anxious as we're doing as we're educating ourselves so if, if I'm I'm hearing right and and um, this is really going to turn into a question for you but moving if we can to some extent from short thoughts short bursts of thoughts that are heavily emotionally laden to, to longer thoughts a little more analytical where we can take take some time with, with an idea and, and, and pause a little bit which leads me then um, uh, to, to kind of my my last question um, we, we like on this podcast to say hey what what's one or two takeaways if if you could give give somebody, um, here's one action or two actions you can take. What's a life hack to kind of stay engaged and be a good citizen? What what would that be? So I do have two suggestions. Um, my favorite one is one I, I frankly stumbled into in class, my political communication class a few years ago. Um, I was trained in communication studies through argumentation and debate. Um, and many of us in the liberal arts focus on how can we make public argumentation better, more high quality. And I do think that's important and something that we need to continue to learn how to do. But because of that bias, I was always trying to get my students to to tr- compare arguments, you know, pro and con on various sides of issues. A few years ago, I, I tried something different. I said, all right, tell us where you stand on this issue, but then tell a story from your life that explains why you feel the way you do. And that was transformative in my classroom because life stories are more complex than arguments. They don't typically fall neatly into one partisan perspective or another. And it and it's harder if you're just trading arguments, the person you're talking to is just building up the counter arguments in their head. They're not really listening to you. It's harder to build up a counter argument against your life story. 
Um, so, so I think that first hack is trade stories rather than arguments, and don't just seek empathy for your perspective, but cultivate empathy for other people. That's part of that story. Um, that's an outgrowth of that story perspective as well. Um, and then I have a, a, a smaller pragmatic suggestion. Um, even though I said don't get most of your news from social media, it's true that many of us still do spend a lot of time on social media, um, particularly Facebook and, and Twitter. Um, I spend a lot of time curating my Twitter feed, uh, and I have two things in mind when I do that. One, I try to follow people who um, who give me fact-based, uh, policy-oriented information from a variety of perspective. So I follow scholars, I follow journalists. Um, I don't, you know, follow a lot of celebrities. I don't follow a lot of people who are just trying to be shocking. Um, so you can set up your, your news feed to actually give you higher quality news. Um, and then I follow a lot of folks who I may not otherwise encounter in my daily life at my job or my church or my school. Um, you know, so we've got we've got black Twitter. And, and so when something happens and I've got a bunch of folks from black Twitter on my feed, you know, they'll be talking about it in ways that are different than may, maybe a lot of, you know, white journalists and policymakers are. And so that just helps me. I don't have to, you know, go to my black friends and say, explain this to me. Please spend some of your time and your labor helping this white person to understand. It's like, no, I you know, these perspectives were out there in the public. I'm just going to seek them out, um, select into them rather than selecting out. Um, so I guess that's, that's the second hack, is use your social media to help you select into conversations that you wouldn't otherwise have, rather than selecting out from conversations that you don't want to have. I, I hear in, in both of those uh, a kind of an underlying theme of trying to build some sort of empathy and understanding of people who might not just be like you or have the exact same positions um, that I already have and, and get reinforced. Dr. Anderson, it's been really wonderful to be here with you to have this conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for the invitation. And I just want to say what a privilege it is to be a member of a department and an academic community that makes its primary job getting people together in rooms who wouldn't normally have conversations with one another. So thank you. Well is a production of the Department of Communication Studies. Carol Bush is the producer and engineer. I'm your host, Gray Dickinson. Until next time, speak well.